0: Please open now in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. I told the elders as we were getting ready this morning to pray, as we do before the service, that I, I think the next book I preach on needs to have smaller chapters. Please stand. Scripture reminds us that the grass outside withers and flowers will fade away, but the word of the living God will endure forever. So it is the privilege and responsibility of His people to hear it and to strive to heed it faithfully together. By the help of the Spirit of God, let us do that now. This is God's word from Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. And stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmil, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherabiah, Bani, and Chanani. and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites Yeshua, Kadmil, Bani. Hashbibaya, close enough. Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. All the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God, the God who chose Abram and brought him up out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath, commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give to them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, ah, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess." So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, and were filled, and became fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness." Nevertheless, they were disobedient, and rebelled against you, and cast your law behind their back, and killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies." So that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, that they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffen their stiffen their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship Seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves." And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Thus far the word of God. Let's pray. In a moment, O Lord, we will sit down and be grateful But now we stand in awe of your word, in awe of your person, in awe of your works, and in awe of the sins of your people. We pray that your spirit that you gave to them, you would now give to us in great measure in such a way that you would not only bless the reading and especially the preaching of your word, but we pray that the greatness of our God would be exalted among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. I'd like to begin the sermon this morning by asking a question to which I intend to return at the end of the sermon. And the question is simply this, are you content with your spiritual progress? Are you content with your spiritual progress? Well, in many ways, one might say that the Protestant Reformation uh, was sparked by someone who was very discontent with their spiritual progress, and you know his name, it is Martin Luther, uh, chubby little german monk who was discontent with his spiritual progress and frustrated by what the church told him was necessary in order to make progress one element in particular confession luther had a nickname for the confessional that some of you have heard it's a rather dramatic nickname he referred to it as the slaughterhouse of the soul how's that for flattery the slaughterhouse Of the soul. And he remarked how unhelpful he would find it to go to confession because the theology of the day taught that in order for you to go to heaven, you have to have confessed the sins that you've most recently committed. And if you happened to not have confessed them, they would be held against you and you might end up someplace like purgatory. Or perhaps you could do something to atone for them, or perhaps someone else could atone for you. And so Luther, burdened as he was, would not only go to the confessional, he would return over and over and over and describes occasions where he would walk out of the confessional only to get five or six steps away and turn right back and go in. For such is the nature of our sins. So easy to sin, thought, word, and deed, it could lead to the slaughterhouse of the soul. But I want to make an observation, perhaps a bold suggestion, that while there's something horribly wrong with the Roman Catholic practice of confession and the uh, misguided and abusive theology that came with it, there's something very right and very biblical about confessing our sins. And you see that here in Nehemiah chapter 9. That is no slaughterhouse of the soul, but rather a path to the gospel of God's grace. We're going to approach our text uh, through three Points, you have them there in your outline. The first of which is, why do the people of God confess their sins? Well, you've heard the saying about the old black preacher famously echoing over and over and over Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. Well, in the last chapter, it was Israel's Friday. In this chapter, it's Israel's Sunday. Friday had come. But Sunday, indeed, was coming as well. To say it a little differently, the party is over, and now it is time for the people of God to deal with their sins. In many ways, this chapter, as long as it is, and difficult as it is not simply to read but even to preach, it is nonetheless, in many ways, a model chapter of prayer. There are fantastic elements to Nehemiah chapter 9. It really is a model prayer in many ways. It stands in the company of great prayers like you find Abraham offering on behalf of his people or Daniel on behalf of the people of Israel. Even in Ezra chapter 1 we saw a similar prayer or you could turn to Psalm 106 where in the Bible uh, we find on occasion beautiful accounts of personal confession of sin or even beautiful accounts of a corporate expression of sin, where the sin confessed is not simply that of an individual, but that of an entire community. Uh, That's what we find here. And this is a unique prayer because it does not simply corporately express the sin of God's people. It also tells the story of God's people throughout history. In other words, uh, it stands along the lines of something like you might even read in Acts chapter 2 or 7 that gives you something of a 30,000-foot view, an aerial run over Israel's history. The chapter teaches us a lot about prayer. It also teaches us a lot about who we are before God. That there's a great gap between that God whom we're going to sing about shortly, who is holy, 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 and a people who are by nature totally depraved. So in our text, nearly two weeks have passed from Nehemiah chapter 8, As we now come to Nehemiah chapter 9, the Feast of Tabernacles is over. And the contrast between the two events is almost hard to overstate. The Feast of Tabernacles was exactly that. It was a feast, a time filled with joy, with laughter, with singing, and with an awful lot of food. Here, Nehemiah 9.1 opens up, it's the perfect opposite. The people of God are assembled, but notice the detail, with fasting and in sackcloth, clothing of mourning. And with earth on their heads, from the dust they have come to the dust they are momentarily returning. If you let the two chapters flow from one into another, you would also uh, remember from our last time together that one of the emerging themes out of Nehemiah chapter 8, a beautiful theme, it was the theme of the sermon, is that the joy of the Lord is our strength. What becomes very interesting, if you remember that line, is to think about uh, if the joy of the Lord is our strength, if the joy of the Lord was their strength, here's a good question, I hope. What is the first thing they did with that strength? What is the strength that the joy of the Lord fuels enable the people of God to do? Well, it it, it might seem like the kind of thing you could pass by quickly, but don't overlook the fact that the first thing Israel does with their newfound strength from the Lord is take time to confess their sins. And when you think about it, It takes strength to do that, doesn't it? It takes a certain measure of soul-searching honesty to stand before God sort of naked and unmasked. It takes a certain sort of strength and even joy to come before Him knowing that not only will He hear us, but that He will receive us because of His great grace. So where we might have expected this to be the other way around, fasting first, feasting second... It's noteworthy that in Nehemiah, it is actually the opposite. It is the fast that follows the feast, because the joy of the Lord being their strength, that strength leads them to confess their sins. It is truly a work of the spirit. It is fueled and driven by the ministry of the word of God, and in many ways, a confession of sin, whether individual or corporate, is a work of God's spirit, who is referenced twice in our chapter, very interestingly. to say a little bit differently. What happens when God is at work among his people? How do you know? What what fruit do you see when, when God is really at work? Is it simply by counting the numbers of bodies and chairs? It's not it. When God is at work in the hearts of his people, what they long for is more of him and less of themselves, and their starting point is often a point of confession. It is, if you will, to say it playfully, the difference between cotton candy Christianity and corporate confession. Nehemiah 9 has no cotton candy. The feasting is now replaced by fasting. There's a certain seriousness about our sins and our walks with God that is noteworthy. Sometimes, if we were honest, we might uh, acknowledge that there is a sort of shallow contentment with a half-hearted Christianity that can easily pepper our Christian lives. I'll say it again. A shallow contentment with a half-hearted Christianity, where it almost seems sometimes like we're simply going through the motions, punctuating the formalities, the body going through uh, all the gestures, all the motions, yet the heart is really far away. This is the sort of thing that Nehemiah 9 really challenges I have wondered for some time. You've been doing some reading on it. I'm still not sure I've got it. But what is the difference between revival and reformation? Well, only a nerd really cares and wants to know what the difference is. Uh, but, but in an effort to take a stab at it, maybe wrong, uh, the latter, that is, reformation, uh, is, is a moment in time where people, if you will, discover the Word of God again and has a particular accent on the turning of sinners into saints by way of God's word, and particularly the gospel. So Reformation, in many ways, leads to a great number of people coming to the faith, as it did in the time of the Protestant Reformation. By contrast, I'm going to suggest that revival is is actually a work in the heart of God's people. It's not new people so much coming to faith. You can't revive something that doesn't already have some measure of life. And so revival, in many ways, is God's Spirit causing the people of God to take their sins seriously because they take God himself seriously. In Nehemiah, again, there's a lot of sin to be taken seriously. So I want to try to unpack this, and I admit it's, it's just a challenge to think through how best to do that. Uh, one, one author who I like quite a bit, uh, Derek Thomas, suggests that there are seven movements here, kind of like a a hymn with seven stanzas, or a book with seven chapters, I want you to know I've tried really hard to see it. I'm just not quite able. Maybe it's there. If you can find it, you can come and show me later. But there is something of a lyrical bouncing back and forth between this is what God has done And this is what we have done. And that echo, uh, that refrain, moves lyrically back and forth throughout the entirety of the chapter. Sometimes accenting, this is who God is and what God has done. Sometimes accenting, this is who his people are and what they have done. But each of these are reflecting on the work of God and the sins of the people in an interactive display with a climax that focuses on the justice of God. It begins with reflecting on God as our creator. And I'm going back now, particularly looking at verses 6 through 15 and thinking about the fact that it is God himself who made us and it is God who made covenant with Abraham. Nehemiah's point in going back to the beginning is to remind all the people of God as they stand there to confess their sins on those steps that day that the one before whom they stand is the creator of heaven and earth. The God to whom they confessed their sins is the God who made not only all things, he is the God who made covenant, who made promises, and who also has kept promises. But then this very uncharitable language is used, and it's echoed several times throughout the chapter, but they acted presumptuously. They took God for granted. They enjoyed the gift while despising and neglecting the giver. What a remarkable way of thinking about how the people of God sinned then and sin now. How much do we cherish the gifts of God more than the giver of those gifts? It's a constant temptation. And not only did they act presumptuously, uh, they stiffened their necks, a phrase often used to large animals like a bull or a camel that's trying to be led uh, one direction and you lead it by turning its head and its neck. But here, uh, this large bull this rebellious wild animal is the people of God, unwilling to have their necks turned, unwilling to have their gaze pointed toward God, and rather they stiffened their necks, turning their gaze away from God and would not obey. And they even, sadly, in this section we were told, appointed a leader to return them, not simply to Egypt, but to their slavery. And you remember that horrible scene in Exodus when they say, would it not have been better for us to be slaves in Egypt and to be out here with this God whom we barely know? And it got worse. They made a golden calf in the wilderness. One of the dumbest episodes in the entire Bible. They throw their jewelry together, melt it themselves, shape it in the form of an animal, and then declare it. This is our God. And they worship it. And they have quite a party, quite a romp. And that's putting it gently. And yet, in the midst of this, of these great blasphemies, You sustained them. God sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. And I love that language. Some of us appreciate it more than others. Even your feet did not swell. You caught that, didn't you? You're like, man, that sounds great. You gave them kingdoms and peoples, children and land, cities and houses, wells and orchards. They ate to the full. And yet, in their fullness and their fatness, nonetheless, they were disobedient, and they rebelled. And then, rather actively and dramatically, in verse 26, they cast... Your law behind their back, almost as though taking a piece of paper, crumbling it up, and just tossing it away. They cast your law behind their back, and even worse, they killed your prophets, who warned them that God's judgment would come if they continued down the path. But nonetheless, they continued to commit great blasphemies. And then, when God's judgment reached them and visited them only for a moment, they suffered and cried out to God, and rather than leave them in their affliction, once more, God rescued them. But as soon as they were safe, as soon as the storm allayed, they rebelled against you once more, and they did evil in your sight. They acted presumptuously, and they did not obey your law. For many years you bore with them, as this cycle repeated, now referring to the book of Judges, where Israel disobeys. God sends judgment. Israel repents briefly, and things return for a little while back to seemingly well until Israel does it again, and the cycle goes on and on and on, like a merry-go-round that cannot stop. Verse 34 and 35 give a remarkable summary. Even though they would not give ear, we were all found before the sight of God, in a certain sense, all found to be Guilty. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom. And amid your great goodness that you gave them in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. They were guilty. In a certain sense, Everyone was guilty. This is what you call a merism, where you read from the highest of the high to the lowest of the low to make the point that everyone, great and small, from kings to nobody, all together are guilty in the sight of God. Kings and princes, fathers and children, even in their own kingdom, they did not serve you. They would not turn from their wicked ways. But I want to pause and ask a question here. And yes, I just ran absolutely quickly over Israel's history, but, but what else would you do with it? But let me ask the question what do you think of it? You know these stories for the most part. You're familiar with it. You've taken the airplane ride over Israel's history in one fashion or another many times. And what is the point that we should draw? Because there is a point that we should draw. Uh, Let me phrase it like this What do you think of Israel's sin? Kind of bad really bad? What is the point of Nehemiah's recounting? Is that although God was creator, covenant maker, and keeper, faithful to his people over and over and over, how many times did he say that they acted presumptuously? How many times did they throw his law behind their back? How many times did they stiffen their necks? How many times did they harden their hearts? They weren't simply kind of bad, or a little bad, spiritually limping, they proved to be ultimately spiritually dead. And here's the point. Don't miss it. We are no better than they. If you stand in judgment over them, with some sort of cloak of spiritual pride, imagining that we are better than they, you have missed the point of the text. Even from Nehemiah's perspective, when he looks at the sins Of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt, when they were in the wilderness during the time of judgment, Nehemiah himself identifies as though their sins, referring to those of the kings, princes, and fathers in the past, were his. There's a measure of solidarity. There's a measure of union. He understands. He's not simply telling the story. He is in the story. In a certain sense, uh, so are we. We are not any better than we. In fact, one of the things that the New Testament tells us very clearly and very plainly is that the law is like a mirror of the soul. Whether it's told in commandment form or story form, the law is a mirror of the soul, of our soul, of my soul, of your soul. Israel's repeated spiritual failure and this long, horrible catalog of rebellion shows us not simply how bad they were, but how bad we are, at least by our nature in our flesh. Their story is a mirror of our story just as much as their depravity a mirror of ours. But where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. You'd be really disappointed if if I stopped without saying that and there being a next point, wouldn't you? Well, rightly so. So let's move on and ask the second question. <clears throat> Why does God hear the confession of his people? One of the wonderful things about Nehemiah 9 is, is the number of, here's a big word, contrapositives. Uh, something that stated and then but. This happened and yet. We did this, but then you. This is the kind of stuff uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones would just have a field day with. But God. We did all this bad stuff, but God. Sin abounded, but God. That is the point. So Nehemiah 9 uses phrases repeatedly like, Though they did this, but you did that. And these things happen, and yet you did this. And even when, there you were. In a certain sense, Israel's sin is the stench of the text, and it stinks up to the heavens. But flowing through this very same text is the aroma of life that leads to the gospel itself. And that aroma of life is found, beloved, in the person and work of God, which is really the point of the text. The point of the text is not simply, this is important here, the point of the text is not simply to confess who Israel is in her sins. In many ways, the point of the text is to confess who our God is in his righteousness. In other words, the text teaches us as much, if not more, about God than it does about ourselves. Yes, he is indeed indeed, our creator as our chapter begins. He is the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He is from everlasting to everlasting, verse 5. He is without beginning or end. He remains unmade. He cannot be unmade. He possesses everlasting power All things derive from him, and he is dependent upon absolutely nothing, narrowly in his person itself. And his name, as revealed, is glorious, exalted above every name, exalted above all blessing and all praise. He is not simply our Redeemer. He is also our covenant Lord. He is the God who made made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And He is a God who keeps all of the covenants that He makes. He is the God for whom not a word shall fall from His lips and fall to the ground unfulfilled. He is the God who not only made promises with the patriarchs. He is the God who came to the aid of Israel and Egypt. The one who redeemed them when He heard their cry. And not only brought them out, but he brought them in, taking them away from Egypt, but settling in the land of Canaan, giving it to them as it were a home for themselves. A God who along the way in between Egypt and Canaan performed great signs and wonders before the eyes of watching nations to the dismay of them all. Who, even then, in the Old Testament pages of history, stamped something like a great commission signal before the nations that Yahweh is God and there is no other. He made a great name for himself, as it is to this day, verse 10. And there, in the midst of the wilderness, he came down from heaven and descended upon Mount Sinai. And he spoke his word, his law, his statutes, his commands to his people. And as they sat there in the wilderness, nervously concerned what they would eat, what they would drink, and what they would wear, he gave them manna from heaven. He gave them water from the rocks. Their shoes did not wear out, and yes, again, their feet did not swell. He was with his people as a pillar by day and a cloud of smoke by night. He never left them nor forsook them. He is the God of whom we might say you fought for them and you went before them. You were their captain, their guardian. You were their rear shield and defender. You tended their every need. There was not a single thing for which they lacked. You gave them so much, they got fat. But when they were faithless, you remained faithful. Verse 16, when they stiffened, their necks, it broke your heart, yet you never broke your covenant with them. They sinned great sins, but you, even you, always you, were there and ready to forgive. They wanted to return to their earthly slave masters, but you would not let them go, for you had a home before them and an even greater one in heaven. They made for themselves idols in this world out of the good gifts you gave them. And even then, even then, when they told you to talk to the hand, your hand reached down from them for them and lifted them up you would not let your people go what is the point that text is trying to tell us but our god is a great god full not simply of power righteousness holiness justice and truth but also abounding with love and grace and so it goes on you gave them kingdoms you gave them lands you gave them houses they ate And were filled, and yet they continued to rebel. They continued to stiffen their neck. And so what would you do as a just God? What did you do? You judged them, and you gave them into the hand of their enemies. As a father, in some ways, gently chiding and disciplining his children. Yet the more you disciplined them, they would at times come back and yet rebel even more. They would come home for a while, only to run away again. Again and again. And again and again. Again. But you, verse 31, did not forsake them or make an end of them. You ever met a patient person? In Nehemiah 9, you meet a very patient God. You did not forsake them or make an end of them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And then comes a plea, a beautiful, heartfelt plea. In many ways, a plea that we find there. In verses 32 and following, we're in this prayer, in this plea, in this corporate confession. It comes down to this. Because of who you are, O God, great, mighty, and awesome, a God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, please, as though begging, look upon us in our affliction. What is Nehemiah saying? Here we are in the land that you have swore to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here we are in this land that you gave to those who came out of Egypt and eventually would settle in. Here we are, O Lord, in this land from which we've been driven away and now brought back. Here we are in the land of promise, and we are slaves. We are slaves. Verse 36 is very important. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit. And its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. This is a corporate confession that comes with a corporate plea. Confessing not simply the sins of the people, perhaps even more importantly, the beauty of who God is. If you only think of confession, As confessing sins, beloved, you're missing the most beautiful part of the entire thing. For Nehemiah's confession centers not upon the sins of the people. Nehemiah's confession centers upon the righteousness of God. A true Christian confession is not one that simply fixates on the sins we've committed. A true Christian confession fixes its eyes upon the one who hears our confession in all that is beautiful, all that is right, all that is holy, just, gracious, and merciful in Him. And this is why Nehemiah can pray this way. Look upon us in our affliction. Judge us in righteousness, but behold us with mercy. How many times, beloved, have you and I prayed something along these lines? Lord, give us not what our sin deserves but rather what your grace affords. If you ever ask God to give you what you deserve, you are a fool. You don't want, nor can you handle what you deserve. That's not what Nehemiah asked for. He rather asked for what God's grace might afford. And where shall such grace be found? This in many ways, beloved, is where the larger view is so helpful. Nehemiah's text is in many ways a breadcrumb trail that leads us to that even fuller revelation of the character of God, of the heart of God, and yes, even the redemptive activity of God. Surely this text helps us to understand the depth of our sin, the depth of our depravity, and even as an old hymn goes, you who think of sin but lightly, Here, its guilt may estimate. But where does this text intend to lead us, but ultimately to Christ himself? Notice how in our text, God sends his word. And even in our text, God sends his spirit. But simply the sending of the law and the spirit to help people to understand it, it was not enough. God had a better plan. God had a fuller plan God had a larger plan because God has a heart that is so large it includes sending not simply His Word and Spirit, but ultimately His Son. There's a beautiful reference here. It's ever so brief. In verse 29, where it says, And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Now here's a line, which, if a person does them, He shall live by them. Such a great line, such a nice little uh, sliver of anticipation of only what Jesus could do. Why? Because Israel's great problem, the people of God's great problem, Nehemiah 9, is not simply that they sinned or failed to do all that the law had commanded. Let me put it together better. They had failed to do what the law commanded. They had sinned actively. They had sinned in thought, word, and deed. But not only had they transgressed, they were unable to keep the law. And being unable to keep the law, even though there was a promise of life in the law that the one who does these things shall live by them, there they were, condemned to death, because not only could they not do it, they would not do it. What they needed, to say it differently and hopefully more clearly, was a doer of the law. A keeper of the law. An answer to God's demand, not simply for justice, for breakers of the law, but to actually satisfy the righteous requirement of the law. And the righteous requirement of the law is not simply the absence of transgression, but positively keeping it. Israel needed a law keeper, not just a law sender. Israel needed one who could stand in their place in judgment, not simply one who would bring judgment in time. What Israel needed was Jesus more than a prophet, more than a priest, more than a king. What they needed was the prophet, the priest, and the king. And let me say it this way what they needed was even more than revival or reformation, they needed resurrection. They needed the resurrection of the law keeper. One who would not only be able to stand in their place at the cross, be with me here, beloved. One who would hear and invigorate all of their prayer, even their prayer of confession. That's what we have in Jesus. One who has done all the law that he might live by it. One who has endured all that the law threatens and accuses against us, but he himself has endured it. And one who now lives, not simply revived or reformed, but resurrected in heaven so that the prayer of the people of God might be heard. That the confession of our sins might be heard. That the acknowledgement of who our God is in contrast to us might be heard. And just like in Nehemiah here at the end of this chapter, even our pleas for help would be heard by him. This is what we have in Jesus, and why we have all that we need in Jesus. This brings us to our third and final point, which is really just an extended point of application. Why confession is good for our souls. I'm going along here. I'm trying to bring something back that could actually be helpful. I asked at the beginning of the sermon, now we come back to it, are you dissatisfied with your spiritual life? Are you dissatisfied with where you're at? It's an open heart surgery kind of question. The last point here, in many ways, is a plea for your heart and for your prayer life. Why? Because quite understandably, I would guess that most of us would have given a answer like yes to that question, are we dissatisfied with where we're at? And part of the problem is that we've been tempted to think that the fixes we need are in all the wrong directions. To play off the title of a pretty popular and well-done book, uh, there is a hole in our holiness, but it might not be where you think it's at. If we are not making progress in the faith, yes, there may be external factors affecting things, but there also might be something glaringly missing right dead in the center. And I want you to think again about what Israel says that clearly helps us understand what occasion this prayer. It's the words in verse 36 30, 37. We read them. I won't read them again. But that echo given three times, we are slaves. So be with me here. Work with me on this last idea Nehemiah 9 recounts their slavery. We were once slaves in Egypt. We were then enslaved by Assyria. It began in 722. Then the Babylonians entered the picture 586. And now here we are back in the land, but the Persians hold sway over us. And notice how he puts it uh, so sadly. They rule over our bodies and they do with us as we please. In a certain sense, Israel had come home and Israel was still enslaved. Do you see the irony? They have come home, but they are still enslaved, not to a foreign power, however. What is their real slavery? What is the real problem that Israel has? Is it the Assyrians? No. Is it the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Persians? No. What was their real problem and their obvious problem? Their obvious problem was sin. Their bound relationship to their sin. All these other nations... They were just, if you will, kind of like a spanking belt. But the belt is never the problem. The child is. What really held them back even in their own land was not a foreign power, but an internal reality, the reality of sin. Okay, so let's make a point of continuity contrast. On the one hand, we have a similar struggle. And yet there's something uh, very profoundly different. We are not, and you're hoping I was going to say it, thinking, we are not what? Slaves to sin. But just because we are not slaves to sin, thanks be to God, doesn't mean that we don't still struggle with sin. And so in that, there's a great point of continuity. We are not slaves to sin. The Spirit of God, Romans 8, has set us free The work of that spirit now assures us that not only do we belong to God, we have an everlasting inheritance that unlike Israel we cannot lose. The gospel has set us free. If we have turned to Jesus by true faith, we have been set free and are no longer slaves to sin, but we do indeed struggle with it. So where is the hole in our holiness? It comes right here. We struggle with sin and spend very little time confessing it. But where sin abounds, God's grace abounds all the more. Twice we were told in this text that God sent His Spirit to His people then to teach them the law. Beloved, how much more does He send His Spirit even now to assure us that we belong to Him? Not just to teach us, but even to confirm and to grant us. And I love this phrase, returning to it is a privilege. The joy of the Lord. That resurrection joy as we looked at it last week. That the ultimate expression of the Christian joy is bound to and found in the resurrection of our Savior Himself. And if the joy of the Lord is our strength, what is one of the great things, beloved, that the Spirit of God, that the joy of the Lord within us enables us to do? What is a great mark of Christian maturity and even a great means of spiritual progress? It is confessing our sins. It's biblical. Just because Rome messed it up doesn't mean it's not biblical. Protestant Christians, think about the way we treated the Lord's Supper. Yes, they messed it up. But in some ways, uh, we make too little of it. Confession, the way that it worked in Luther's day, was rightly nicknamed the slaughterhouse of the soul. But one of my good friends turned a great phrase for our prayer of confession in our liturgy here, referring to it as the mother of all Christian prayers. Now maybe that's overstated, but pause and think about it. Where would your Christian life be if you did not take time to confess your sins to God? What relationship exists and functions where people are unwilling to acknowledge their faults and their sins against one another? What unity actually exists Even between God and us, if we do not have that which makes us clean and removes all that separates us. Think about what Scripture says. If we confess our sins, what is He? Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To say it differently and very clearly, you still need confession of your sins in your life. You don't need the slaughterhouse of the soul. We do not believe or teach that if you don't do this right before you die, you're going to go to purgatory and have to hang out there for a while. That's really horrible and manipulative. Uh, but think about it, even the way we're taught as young Christians. The most, what is the most basic formula for Christian prayer, if not ACTS, the acts of prayer, where we, what do you do in Nehemiah 9? Adore God for who he is, confess sin for who we are. Thank God for his mercy and his grace. And then finally, ask him for what we need. The problem with so much of our prayer life is at a minimum, it skips number two, if it arguably doesn't skip over number one. We spend too little time saying to God, this is who you are. That's confession. Confession. That's part of the confession in Nehemiah chapter 9 is to tell God in prayer, God, this is who you are, creator, redeemer, covenant keeper, adorable Lord. And then confessing our own sins. If we were honest, most of our time in prayer, if we spend time in prayer, is focused on the S, simply asking God for what we need. More daily bread. Help me with this test. Help me with this problem. But how much time do we actually spend adoring Him and confessing Him? So if you are discontent, beloved, as I am, with our progress in the faith, it could indeed be because the hole in our holiness is that there is very little confession in our life. In saying that, we're not saying that we backslide now and return from Geneva to Rome, but rather to acknowledge that which is simply Biblical, part of a healthy Christian life includes prayer, and a healthy Christian life certainly includes confessing who God is and who we are before Him. So you may not think, perhaps, that a prayer of confession is the mother of all prayers. But you should certainly not refer to a positive use of confession. A positive, right, and biblical use of confession is the slaughterhouse of the conscience. Luther, after he got this doctrine straight still very much appreciated the role of confession in the life of a Christian, do we? Is there a hole in our holiness that affects our relationship with God? Too proud to confess our sins, or too lazy to take the time? Is there an unwillingness to confess them horizontally? And rather than walk the gap, step across the aisle, we'd rather just enjoy the wall? This is a sure way of access to God, the great reconciler between God and man, a means of grace that brings pardon and peace. And to say it uh, very simply now as we finish, there is nothing wrong, beloved, with confessing our sins. In fact, according to the Word of God, there's everything right with it. Let's pray. Oh Lord and our God, there is so much we can learn from this text, from what has been dubbed by, by many a model prayer, and so much that we skipped over. But Lord, perhaps the heart of it was focused upon to confess to you this is who you are, to acknowledge our God and all of his goodness, his beauty, his glory, his honor. Not simply his attributes, but even his works. Lord, this, this is what Christians ought to be about and to take time to acknowledge our sinfulness before you, this too can be a very helpful exercise. A father in the faith said that in order for us to truly know you, we need to know ourselves honestly. And to truly know ourselves helpfully, we also need to acknowledge who you are in all of your person, and all of your work. And so we ask, Lord, that you'd help us to confess both of these, who you are and who we are, but that you'd help us to recognize that it is Jesus Not narrowly our confession; it is Jesus who stands in between, for He truly is the God-Man, the One who had no sins to confess, is the One who is most able to hear us as we do, because He did all that the law required, and also took the place of those who'd broken it. So we thank you for all that we have in Him, and we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to revive us to reform us, to resurrect us more and more into the image of God, that your spirit would work great things in our hearts individually, and that your spirit would work great things in our heart corporately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.